Finding the perfect developer isn't easy, but at Upwork, we found her. She's in Prague, between the ideal cup of coffee and a truly impressive synthesizer collection. And you can find her right now on Upwork.com. When the world is your workforce, finding the perfect project manager, designer, developer, or whomever you may need tends to fall right into place. Find top-rated talent who can start today on Upwork.com. Y'all know that we are all about having difficult and tricky conversations here on Copper and Heat. We believe that's the only way to make the restaurant industry better and more equitable. And we're always looking for new ways to include you, our listeners, in that conversation. So we're partnering with a brand new app that will allow us to have conversations directly with you. It's called Two Cents, and it's really cool. The app is currently in the middle of beta testing, and you, as Copper and Heat listeners, are some of the very first people to hear about it. Here's how it works. We're going to be hosting special after shows, as they're called on Two Cents. In these after shows, you can chat with us and with other Copper and Heat listeners about the important topics we cover in each episode. This week's episodes are all about organizing and unions, a hugely relevant and complex topic. And we really want to hear your experience and thoughts. So go to www.twocents.audio slash copperheat to join the conversation in this week's after show. That's two cents with the number two, C-E-N-T-S. You can register to get access to the app there. The beta is currently only for Android users, just a heads up. And as a thank you from Two Cents, the first 50 people that sign up and leave an audio comment in this week's after show by Friday, April 9th, will get a $20 Visa gift card. Again, that's www.twocents.audio slash copperheat. The link is in the show notes. I can't wait to hear from you all. Before working at 13, I was working a lot of different cafe jobs, trying to find one that, you know, I had worked a bunch of odd jobs before in service and hadn't really found something that was going to be stable. This is Matthew. My name is Matthew Torres. I'm 24 years old uh, and I live in Oakland, California. I was a barista at a Tartine manufacturer for two and a half years, uh, up until September of 2019. And then I moved on to the Tartine Berkeley location up until they closed that location. Uh, that must have been May of 2020. Tartine is a really popular bakery that started in San Francisco. It's known for its artisan bread made with natural sourdough. They have bakery locations in San Francisco, LA, and Seoul, South Korea. They're known for being very local, community-minded, and thoughtful about their products. Or at least, they used to be. I had a friend that was also a barista working at the manufacturing, and he's like, hey, my job's hiring. You work, you know, at least like five shifts a week. Um, You know, they're usually six hours, and there's pulled tips. So instead of just the San Francisco minimum wage, which is higher than in Oakland, where I live, you also get the nice little pull tips. So... I'm making, you know, anywhere from, depending how good it is, anywhere from maybe $900 to $1,300, depending on what shifts I'm I'm working. That was my introduction to Tartine. I kind of knew about it before, but I didn't really understand too much. And this was just their second location. This was, I was like, oh, this is like a company, you know, they're starting up. There was a lot more future to be made for other people who work there, uh, opportunities in their coffee program. I was like, this is great. Stable. You get health insurance. You get to work. And then you get to go home. 
things I wanted, what I wasn't used to in the restaurant industry. In early 2020, just before the pandemic shutdowns, there was a lot of press around the efforts of Tartine workers to unionize. And since then, it's been a lot of back and forth and a lot of fighting to make it official. Over a year later, on March 30th, 2021, the Tartine union was officially recognized. We talked to Matthew before the news that the union was official to hear all about the experience. And it was a very long road. You're listening to Copper and Heat, the podcast exploring the unspoken rules and traditions of restaurants. I'm Katie Osuna. This is Pre-Shift, our third season, getting you tips, tools, and resources to navigate the challenges of working in hospitality. In this Pre-Shift, we're talking about what it looks like to start a union. We'll get to it after this message. I love fried chicken. I think about it more than I should. This is Chef Tori. I'm Tori Miller. I'm the chef and owner of Latoile Restaurant. Gray's, Miller Family Meat and Three, and Estreon Restaurants in Madison, Wisconsin. Cooking at home can be hard, but Chef's Dreams is bringing world-renowned restaurant chefs into your home kitchen with pro tips and culinary techniques, like this one from Chef Tori, the James Beard and Iron Chef winner from Madison, Wisconsin. The technique for my fried chicken, it's a long process. Like the professional process is three days. Like day one, it's like you break down on the chicken and brine it. And then day two is a drying process for the chicken. And then it goes in the cooler for a day. And then day three, you actually fry the chicken and eat it. I was like, there's no way that I can dry it out in the open in my little house refrigerator. So I found that just doing the drying part at home works pretty well. I always do a half a cup of cornstarch, two tablespoons of salt, and then two teaspoons of baking powder. I leave it sit out for 20 minutes, then I just put it in a Ziploc bag, chuck that in a bowl, and then shove that in my fridge. I do leave it overnight, though, because I think that that's pretty primo. With an annual membership to ChefStreams, you have access to weekly interactive live stream experiences where you cook a multi-course meal with your favorite chefs. Plus, members get access to a library of over 30 past classes available on demand. And there are exclusive deals from cooking-related brands like Tillit, Made in Cookware, and Messermeister, which is so awesome. We've worked out a special discount on membership for Copper and Heat listeners that will save you 40% off the standard membership rate. So you can get an annual membership for $99 instead of the usual $165. To learn more about Chef Streams and take advantage of this special offer, go to chefstreams.com and enter the invite code COPPER when you request a membership invitation. Yeah, so my experience getting folks into a union, it's an intense process. It's not a game. It is not a game. This is Sahaitu. Yeah, um, so my name is Sahaitu Abi. She's a community organizer for One Fair Wage, a nonprofit NGO here in the United States that is led by advocates for restaurant workers to end the subminimum wage for tip workers who make less than the minimum wage. Sahaitu has worked in unionizing restaurant workers, but now does more community organizing with One Fair Wage. While we're talking about Tartine as a kind of case study, it's important that we keep in mind all the big forces in and out of the industry that affect unions. So that's why we talked to Sahai too. You know, before you even start that process, you have to do that SWOT analysis. On top of that, uh, strategically, if you put all of this energy and this time and this money into this campaign, what's the likelihood of you winning, right? Because you can't invest 
hundreds of thousands of dollars into something and you're not sure it's going to happen because with the union organizing campaign, you have workers in a particular space, a workspace, turf, perhaps a building. And then you have a group of organizers who are part of an organization that's separate from those workers that are are employed by a management company or an owner. And so how does that relationship get established in the first place? What does that relationship look like around the country and other states, right? Is there a union between those workers and that employer in other states? What's the likelihood? Is this an independent restaurant? Is this part of a, a larger group? So there's there's all these determining factors and variables that determine if it, this is even going to make sense. Because the likelihood of an owner or a company shutting down, finding ways to fire folks and to shut it down is always constant. That's just the norm. That's the everyday. So that union process, it requires secrecy. It's like, I, I, I was like a private investigator. <laughs> it requires a certain type of commitment, you know, because once you decide, hey, this is my, my room and all the people in this room, we need to, to build community no matter what. If you've got 100 folks, you got to have 50%, more than 50%. Really, you need to get 70%. So what is your strategic plan going to be? Once you have that, now you have a plan of organizing. And so the introduction of a union is you're saying you're building power. You're saying, hey, we're going to make an agreement between the workers and the employer. And together we'll decide what our hours look like and how we get paid and what our benefits look like versus the employer making every decision really without your consideration and based on their business plan. So, you know, those are just the beginning steps. I think it's just important to do a lot of research about your employer. Do your research about your employer before you come up with all your grand ideas. So back to the Tartine story. Well before they announced their intent to unionize, they were doing the research and having conversations. I'm one of the, not the original founders, but one of the one of the first people to start the union uh, along with four other people, four, four or five other people. We had been talking about it a year prior. Like, oh, that would be so cool. You know, right across the street, there's a veterinary hospital. And we were getting really close with the nurses and a lot of the other workers that worked there. And they were in the middle of a union drive. So as we're working, they're having actions in front of their workplace. That veterinary hospital is owned by the Mars Corporation, a candy bar company. But, you know, it wasn't until we made a connection with somebody at my friend Emily Haddad had ran into uh, one of the workers from Tartine Bakery right on Valencia in San Francisco. It was like, hey, like we were talking about doing this, you know, maybe talking about doing a union thing. Like, do you guys want to talk? Like, yeah, actually, there's some people at the bakery that want to talk about it. So we all met up one night and, you know, we just started to like, okay, what is this? You know, and this is off the heels of Anchor Brewing, the famous San Francisco uh, beer company being unionized just months prior before our conversation. So we kind of had these two things around us, you know. As we were talking about the union, um, there was a lot of different managers, at least at my location, that were kind of going in and out. It was a new company. Tartine works under a restaurant group. That was not really obvious to us at first. It had to do some more digging because then once they had opened, I think in Korea, 
we were kind of like, wait a second. A lot of us weren't getting wage increases. A lot of us were having really bad, you know, restaurant work is really scrappy and a lot of ethics are being crossed and, you know, a lot of bad things were happening to cooks, to, to, to everybody. And, and a lot of people who work there are young and a lot of people that work there are very, you know, progressive, you know, people. And kind of to work in the conditions of the restaurant industry, this kind of like old guard of like industry, like this is what we need to do in order to serve our guests, was not collaborating with the BIPOC people who actually also work there. Once Korea opened, we were really worried. And then once LA opened, we kind of were like, this seems really massive. And we have gone through multiple managers and we're not seeing any pay increases or anything about money, you know. Everything is so big. Everything is really big. We just felt like there was a bigger monster behind Tarty, but we couldn't really understand what the monster was or where the money was coming from. But just a lot of the same old restaurant scrappiness that we were dealing with and the racism, the homophobia, the transphobia, everything that happens in the restaurant, we're like, we want to have a say in it. And we tried to do that in multiple ways. We organized, even before the union, we helped organize uh, immigration training for our Spanish speakers because there was a really big scare, you know, a year or two ago with someone seeing uh, ICE in the mission. And, you know, we wanted to make sure that people were safe. So we cared about each other. There was already a sense of, you know, people caring about one another inside. The best thing might be for you to join an organizing coalition, <laughs> some organizing group, because as you take all your steps, you kind of need a, a plan. And it's hard to plot out that plan without support. And even if you have all of your coworkers on board, that does that's not enough to be just quite honest. So I, I would really say before you make any major moves, get to get connected with an organization just for support. And sometimes you can get connected with a local union. I think it's also important to always get connected with um, some type of legal association. We work with Inland, but find any legal association that offers, you know, free services and counsel to you. We're like, well, who do we talk to? We don't know how to do any of this. And I think that's where a lot of workers maybe get confused on how to do this. We were able to get in contact with somebody from the Democratic Socialists of America, the San Francisco chapter, and they have a whole labor committee. Their labor committee, their job is to help workers get connected to existing labor unions. Both Anchor and the Veterinary Hospital was organized by the International Longshore and Warehouse Union. They're one of the best unions in the United States, really democratic. They are legendary in the Bay Area. You know, they control the whole West Coast. They're a West Coast waterfront from Alaska to the Panama Canal. That's what they're known for, but they've also organized, you know, the warehouse part, Local 6, which we wanted to be a part of. Um, and I was like, oh, that'd be such a dream. And, you know, luckily with the connection to Anchor Steam, once we started getting rolling, our labor organizer, Evan, he helped us get us connected. And we had a meeting with the organizer from the union. So that's just kind of how it started. Mapping is a specific technique or tool to first just, you have to get 
an understanding of who are you working with? How does everybody feel? Because you may feel a certain way based on whatever it happened, but you have to identify what everybody else feels like. So if you have 20 people who are working at your place or 100 people, you got to do the work, the research and find out, well, how do you feel? How much are you getting paid? What are the issues? So identify what the issues are amongst as many people as possible. Because if you find out there's only two people out of 100 folks who have issues, I think we might need to slow down. Whereas if you're having conversations and you find out 30, 40 people all have something, figure out what your rubric is. You want to talk about hours? You want to talk about respect? You want to talk about health care? Do you want to talk about breaks? Right? Identify what that is, the relationship with the manager. Figure out those six issues. Have those conversations track some data and if you see this first of all written down yes the proof is there okay we know this okay continue to have conversations with your co-workers you can always build power you can always build community you can always build trust and honestly when you have small issues that happen at work you can get strategic enough sometimes to get your managers to do what you need to get them to do right because oftentimes it's people skills you know there's i I don't actually even want to highlight what the different issues are because i don't know what the specific thing is but these are just some basics and part of mapping also is just identifying all the names of the folks that you work with some demographics about them what their issues are once you figure out what their issues are see if folks want to have a meeting with you that's the first step if everyone wants to have a meeting outside of work i always do not have these conversations at work i really recommend only on a break off of the property it's really best don't have these conversations really bold in front of your managers in front of your boss be very modest about this and try to get it off premise have a meeting so you can individually build that power right and so i think you know with covid specifically it pushed me to have super super honest conversations with people you know i can say a a number and say 70 percent of restaurant workers are women okay i can say that (laughs) and i can say that they're the highest rates of sexual harassment in the restaurant industry industry i can say that but like what what that means in a conversation with a worker with potentially a friend of mine potentially someone who will be my friend um a comrade in this movement that's that's really personal because you have to have a certain type of trust with someone to to get to the level of you know what's abuse's role in how you show up at work that To a stranger, and to be honest, with a lot of organizing, I'm talking to strangers and building a relationship with them. So just think about, you know, we just met yesterday and uh, three months from now, I'm having conversations like this with you. Months into it, things might happen with a person. And at the end of the day, you're building a community. So you have to have that openness um, and that ability just to communicate with the people you're organizing. So those, I mean, you know, in terms of the details of my conversations, they get, they can be really real. (laughs) They get real, real. So what will it take you to get here? It took us a year in underground organizing without letting anybody know, which meant getting, you know, over 140 people to sign a piece of paper. And it was a lot of talking. For one, I think unions are mystified 
across the whole the United States, but also a restaurant union seems more vague because there hasn't been a, a restaurant union movement like this in a very long time. Of course, there's a lot of hotels and bars and things like that. But for us, it was just constantly going back and just kind of pointing out what the problems were. My strategy talking to people was always pointing out the problems. I was like, I would ask people like how they were doing. You know, I genuinely care about everyone I work with, but I asked them, I was like, how do you like your job right now? Oh, you know, whatever problem it was, you know, and kind of just figure out what's, what's the harm that's going on, you know, trying to assess that. And once I, I know I'm like, Hey, this is a thing that we're doing. Do you want to come meet with us later? We're having a meeting, but you know, it's always a risk when you're telling somebody that you're like, but you can't tell that to management, you know, having to do that multiple times, there's multiple scares. Like, do they know like what's going on? You know? So we were really strong. You know, we had over like, I think it was like 65, 70% of the employees that signed on to that letter, you know? So again, it's just a lot of talking, a lot of being really straight out on how this was going to go because we didn't promise anything. We only, the only thing we promise is that we're going to be here or we're, we're going to see it through. Having these conversations is incredibly challenging for a lot of reasons. And the organizing team at Tartine faced several specific challenges. Tartine was an expanding company. So when we first started to organize, there's two locations. Okay. And then there was a third one. They opened up the Sunset location. And then they opened up the fourth one. It was the Berkeley location. So we kept having to organize and organize and organize. And typically, like, a you know, there's over 200 people that work there. Doing a campaign like this while, the, while they're opening businesses, we had to figure out ways to organize, you know, differently. You know, so, like, I... I started working at the Sunset location to get shifts to talk to people. And then we had people there that were, you know, able to talk to the people who worked there. And then I ended up being in Berkeley. We were able to get most people on board, but the I think the people that were a bit more elevated in their positions, like the bread bakers, it was really hard to, to get to them. The hardest group to get were the bread bakers, to be honest with you. I know a lot of bread bakers and it's their lives. And I really respect that. But the way that the company is growing and growing and growing, um, there was definitely special treatment to them. You know, Chad would visit them. Um, you know, he would visit me, <laughs> but I had coffee. So, you know, I think there was a more, you know, they had more luxury uh, than, than we did. They had the personal, you know, to have tartine on your resume as a bread baker is like gold. You know, you can go anywhere in the United States and use that as a way to get employment. So when it came down to it, they were, they were really hostile. So Matthew was talking about the letter that 141 Tartine workers signed on to. This letter is the intent to organize that is sent to ownership. It just basically says, we want to do this, so please don't stand in our way, or we'll take it to the National Labor Board. It's on their Twitter, so I'll link to it. But all this underground organizing and all the conversations they were having was just the precursor to the official legal process. It's up to the owners to either voluntarily acknowledge the union or not to. Next strategic steps, get connected with your city officials. Like, 
COVID showed us that your local city officials can really help you when it comes to, you know, issues with unemployment. Folks were calling the lines to different unemployment offices trying to get a hold of folks and they got so desperate. Fortunately, there were town halls and city officials gave their numbers out and said, hey, call us. We will personally help you. So once you get yourself and your coworkers organized, get connected with a local city official. Get them to find out what's happening at this popular venue that all these people go to so you can get some attention around it. Because the next step could be having some type of community town hall, right? Because there's actually a lot of things. If you can build that power, get one elected official, city official, you could even get someone from the Senate to come down. Make sure you have your legal support. Get connected with a local organizing group. The Tartine Union got support from city officials that came out in support of the effort and sent letters to Tartine ownership. This helps put pressure on ownership to recognize the union. From when you file, there's one month in between the election from when you file. So a month, a full, full month of just harassment. In the case of Tartine, they did not voluntarily recognize the union. The co-founder, Elizabeth Pruitt, wrote a statement that outlined why. It's on their Instagram. In it, she said that Tartine is already providing wages and benefits well above anything else in San Francisco, and there have never been any formal complaints from employees. So they think that the union didn't have the best interest of employees at heart. At first, we were like, maybe they'll voluntarily recognize us. They took a day, you know, like, oh, maybe this could be, you know, really restorative. And maybe this could be something that could be a little bit more different, you know. Uh, the goal of unions is to continue to make the business profitable too to make sure that it's working you know it's so once they deny us and they gaslight us and they come out with this letter and they hire for a short time a public flack official i'm forgetting his name and i shouldn't forget it his name is sam singer and in the bay area he's known for being the pr damage control behind controversial issues like when a pipe at chevron's oil refinery in richmond california burst in 2014 sending over 10,000 people to the hospital so the choice by tartine to you singer didn't go unnoticed so they hired the spokesperson infamous spokesperson to really talk a lot of shit about us and we're like oh okay they're like they're they're coming out and it wasn't until they hired a union busting firm that also represented <laughs> did Trump hotels only just a few years ago. We're like, wow, so there's no money. They're very expensive. You can look this up all online to see how much these firms make because they have to do that when they're doing a union campaign. And they can make thousands of dollars a day. For reference, Tartine hired Lupe Cruz and Associates as a union consultant. The reports aren't public yet, but documents from other clients of Cruz & Associates shows that, one, they did do work for Trump Hotels, and two, they do get paid a good chunk of money for what they do. New Seasons Market, the grocery store chain, paid them over $300,000 in 2017 to help stop unionization efforts. It, it was just, it was so, it was such a slap in the face. It was like, really, you, there is no money here, right? There's no money. It's just... You know, so it it was really surprising. It was really funny. It was really, I mean, I think it was really upsetting to see how far they were going to go. When they start doing these meetings, they have general meetings with everybody, like with the whole staff, and they kind of see who's talking a little bit louder. 
who's questioning a little bit, you know, we were able to prepare our organizers and people that had been organizing with us to understand what they're going to say to you. So they figure out who's the loudest and they start doing scheduled meetings for different people. So you have meetings with more vulnerable people that maybe aren't as outspoken and hammer them with information. Um, and then you have all the rebel rousers in another meeting. They would have all Spanish speaking meetings. And that was one of the more problematic things that they did. I'm not going to say who's undocumented or who's whatever their immigration status is, but people that are, have different countries of origin telling them that, you know, their citizenship can be in, in jeopardy due to the union is repulsive. I think it's fucked up. And we had a really strong Spanish base. We had really strong organizers that, that were a part of that community that come from places where, you know, they're also sending money back home. You know, and this is all that they have, you know, and it was racist. It's racist. I think it's racist. It was really, really racist. And it was unethical. You know, union busting is unethical. It does not give a line of communication. At, at least at the Tartine Berkeley location, all the staff, including me, were outspoken. 18 of us were outspoken. So there was no way that they were going to do that to us over there. So they would never come. Oh, we're going to have a meeting today. We're like, okay, let's have a meeting. But they would never come. After this month, after the letter of intent, it comes down to a vote. What had ended up happening, we had two different votes because um, they're two different regions. So in Berkeley, they have their own region within the National Labor Board. So that had to be done out of an Oakland office uh, of the National Labor Board. In San Francisco, go to the San Francisco office. So we couldn't have one single election together. But we did it within a few days of each other. So after the harassment, a lot of people from the, the Spanish-speaking side of our organizing was, were not responding to us were really scared and a lot of them either voted no or decided not to vote at all and that was what really hurt us so we voted happened at all three locations in san francisco we had planned uh, a party at forgetting what bar that was but you know just kind of see where the results were the results are going to be counted inside the tartine bakery office during the election the people that oversee it is usually it's going to be someone from the company and somebody from the union. So me. So I was an observer for one of them. There was another observer for uh, Tartine. So those were the only two people that were going to be there and, and the labor board agent. They would help conduct it just so it's equal. And that went on for, I think they put it for eight hours and we we got the results I think around four or five o'clock, uh, once they counted it up, my friend Pat, who works at the bakery, was there watching watching where they count. And, you know, Liz was there, all these, all, you know, all this gang of lawyers were there, you know, seeing them count. They literally count out the ballots one by one by one. So then we get a text message. Oh, we won. We're like, oh, shit. You know, but we won by some absurd thing like 10 votes or eight votes or something like that. And we're like, okay, we want great. But we 
didn't understand yet, it needs to go to court now. There's a sort of range of votes that you need to be in in order for it to not become a, uh, basically be disputed. When the election was happening, when the employer has to give off uh, a role of uh, people who work there to the union and they decide who's eligible or not. And Tartine knocked a bunch of people um, to like, oh, they don't have enough hours. They don't have enough hours. They're not eligible to vote. So then those people, their votes would be, um, their their challenge votes. Um, So what Tartine did, they had some managers uh, vote, not allowed to vote, some supervisors not allowed to vote, and they ticked off a lot of people that they're like, oh, well, they can't vote, you know, out of outrageous terms. And we only had, the union only had a few that they challenged. I think it was like four or five. But so once we learned that we won, we were like, oh, wow, now it has to go to court. And there's kind of like, we still celebrated because it was really important that that sort of happened. Um, But we, you know, this is a week from, or a week and a half from the shelter in place and our worlds were going to change in in that week. And we were just kind of like, wow, this is, this is great. Like, well, you know, we'll go to court. Ah, you know, it's fine, you know. And we've been in court since last year. Matthew worked at the Berkeley location, which, as he said, had a separate vote because of their location. All 18 voted in favor of unionizing, which was a huge win. However, a week or so later, the pandemic shutdowns hit and the landlord of the building didn't renew their lease. So the Berkeley location closed. Most of these employees weren't hired back at any of the other Tartine locations, including Matthew. The San Francisco vote was 89 yeses and 84 noes. 24 additional votes were challenged, two by Tartine and 22 by the union. This meant that both Tartine management and the union organizers had been given a list of who was voting, and if either side didn't think some of these folks were eligible to vote, they were challenged. Those people could still vote, but their votes were kept sealed and uncounted in the tally until a decision was made about the eligibility of the voter, which took a long time. Over the summer, there was a hearing, there was a lot of back and forth between the National Labor Board is the one that holds court. They're the ones that hear out the cases. So there was like a bunch of challenge votes they had to go through. So that included testimony from managers, that included testimony from employees from both sides to figure out the challenge votes and where it headed, needed headed to go. And this was like at least two months of like being in, inside this court. And it came down to somebody who worked at my location. It came down to one vote came down to one single vote. Our friend Kyle, he had transferred from Berkeley to the bakery where his partner also worked. They were saying he didn't have enough hours to be an employee, but he was, he was, he was an employee. So the union won that appeal that he is an employee, but in court you can appeal it. So they appealed it. And they went back and forth. And this happened in like July. And then we heard, you know, last year that it just kept going up. So now currently it's sitting in Washington, D.C., the national headquarters. In October of 2020, the local labor board decided that 10 of the challenged votes should be counted and 14 should be thrown out. 
Tartine appealed that decision. When I talked to Matthew, that's where the case was sitting, in Washington, D.C., after Tartine had appealed the local decision. But the National Labor Relations Board rejected the appeal, so the 10 votes that were found eligible were counted. Four were in favor of the union, six were against it. So the final vote was 93 yeses and 90 noes. So, unionizing is an incredibly long, complicated, and arduous process. It took over a year for the Tartine Union to be recognized, and that's relatively quickly compared to some. But the fact that the Tartine Union was recognized is a huge win. So it is possible to make it happen. There's a lot of campaigns that have happened since Tartine. My, my tip for a lot of those people were just like, don't be scared. There's so much more resources than there was before. Instead of just going to a labor union, you can also hit up any DSA chapter and see if they have a labor committee. Those people are already a part of unions and can actually help you direct you into figuring out what union would be best for you. You know, there's a lot of support and you can do it. You know, there's such, um, you know, especially in this country right now, nobody's making what they need to make in order to live. Um, It's just not possible. Um, And, you know, I also work at smaller restaurants. You know, I work at another restaurant in Oakland, uh, or well, I did. It was my friend Oscar's restaurant. He, I saw I'm, I'm not how much he, we make a night. There's like six people working there. It's just him and, and, and his co-owner. And he could not afford to give us more money. He just couldn't do that. So I understand that. But there's so many businesses like Tartine, like places like Donut Friend in Los Angeles, or places like August Coffee in Redlands uh, here in California, where these are bigger companies that have at least like over 100 to 150 employees that this needs to happen. This is just barely scratching the surface of unions and organizing. So head over to our Instagram page and follow us. We'll be doing an IG Live with Sahai 2 next Monday so that we can chat more about organizing in your workplace, whether that's for a union or just community organizing. Even if you're listening to this well after we post the episode, the recording is still on our IGTV at Copper and Heat. You can find the Tartine Union on Twitter at Tartine Union. They're open to DMs if you want to pick their brains about unionizing. We've also linked to some of the other places that Matthew mentioned, like Donut Friend in LA, who our friends over at Sidework Podcast talked to for one of their most recent episodes. Check it out. Sahaitu is doing some really great work with One Fair Wage, so check them out as well. We're also linking to a bunch more resources about unionizing and organizing specifically for folks in the restaurant industry here in the show notes. So please check them out so that you can make change either in your workplace or help push for change in the restaurant industry as a whole. If you haven't already done it, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. Then you can keep up with all of our new episode releases throughout the season. Even better, share this with a friend. Copper and Heat is a member of the One Star Podcast Network, the first podcast network dedicated to representing voices and stories from the service industry, with shows created by service industry workers. Check out our website, onestarpodcastnetwork.com, to learn more about the other shows. Pre-Shift, the third season of Copper and Heat, is produced by me, Katie Osuna. Our story editor is Rachel Palmer. Our sound engineer and composer is Ricardo Osuna. Thanks so much for listening.